We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome, everybody. It's Steve with Sense Fidel. And coming at you with the conclusion of our socialism series or series on socialism or however you want to word this with Michael Graney on where do we go from here? Donde? <laughs> Donde va? <laughs> Michael, how you doing? Thank you as always. And uh, yes, have at it. Yeah. Well, where do we go from here? At the at this point, things look pretty bad. I mean, we've over the course of fifteen videos. Is it really fifteen? <laughs> fifteen videos or not fifteen videos? It looks bad on every level, everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, what we've seen, what the new things, you know, socialism, modernism, and new age esotericism, have done to fundamental institutions in church, state, and family, uh, and it's been going on. Well, since day one of creation, of course, but its current phase started in the very early 19th century, and it has been, let's just say, double plus ungood. I mean, when, as, as George Orwell would have said in 1984, it's not good. And frankly, the situation does look hopeless to a lot of people, and we've got a lot of people, including those who think of themselves as our leaders, doing many inappropriate and desperate things to try to straighten things out. Now, of course, if you really want to straighten things out, view this series and you'll know exactly what to do, right? Uh, or at least you may get a glimmering of some of the principles. But even though the situation may seem hopeless, if we've done anything in this series, I hope that what we've done is show that it's not hopeless. As, as Father William Faree, who was a, a co-founder of the Center for Economic and Social Justice, always liked to say, in social justice terms, of course, nothing is impossible. Now, of course, we're talking about real social justice, not the euphemism for socialism. Uh, I can't remember which of the previous videos went into that in a great deal of depth, but social justice and socialism are not the same thing. For example, anybody can impose socialism if you have enough guns, but social justice, in fact, any of the social virtues can only be done, carried out by members of organized groups. And the object of a social virtue is always the common good, not directly individual goods. That has to be kept in mind at all times. But the point I'm making here to start off with is we have to keep in mind nothing is impossible. And then, of course, qualify that by saying in social justice terms. I mean, with the right 
principles and the right objective, you can do pretty much anything within reason. Take, for example, something I just thought of the other day when looking at you know the debt figures for countries in the world and people panicking simply because the amount of government debt has reached astronomical proportions. And of course, under Keynesian economics, well, how do you even have money without government debt? Well, that's another whole subject, but very easily, actually, if you really understand money, credit, banking, and finance. But if those of you who are historians recall, after the Franco-Prussian War, which Bismarck, by the way, engineered, as recently revealed documents have made clear, he manipulated France into that war in order to destroy it. And after the war, he imposed an indemnity of nearly 1 billion US dollars, which at that time was actually real money. I mean, today they say a billion here, a billion there, it might end up actually meaning something, but back then it really <laughs> did mean something. And Bismarck fully intended that indemnity to destroy France economically forever because he wanted to make Prussia and of course the German empire built around Prussia into the top dog in Europe, which of course meant you had to take out France, which was for centuries the, the, the top dog or the top poodle, I guess, I don't know. Actually, poodles are very good dogs. They've just been kind of spoiled by inbreeding and misuse. They were bred as hunting dogs. Uh, but back to the real point here <laughs> is that an indemnity that was intended to destroy France forever economically speaking, was paid off in two and a half years. And from the, what we call the just third wave perspective here, it's all of a sudden understandable. First, you had all the nouveau riche in America and England and other parts of the world demanding French products. If you were going to drink wine, it had to be French, especially champagne, which by the way, most Frenchmen consider a rather ordinary wine. It's the bubbles that make that one. Uh, French wool, French silk. It had to be French. Otherwise, it wasn't good enough for the newly rich. So there was a huge demand for French products. Second, the industries that produced these products were by and large broadly owned by as many people as possible. They were usually family owned or even some of the workers in the larger companies were owners of these companies. I mean, try you, those, these were the days when you couldn't exactly have factory farming for, uh, for sheep or wine or something. These were small scale operations. They are broadly owned. And the French produced their heads off, which was made possible by the way, by some guy named Louis Pasteur because he saved the wine industry, the cheese industry, the sheep and everything with his discoveries, even though he was just a lowly chemist who said his rosary. There's a, there's a joke about the story, but not a joke. It's a story. Uh, in a railroad in France one time, this, you know, know-it-all student who of course, very sophisticated, got into a train carriage and there was this fellow dressed basically like a French countryman sitting there saying his rosary. And of course, the student very politely, however, you know, basically told him how wrong he was to go with all these superstitions and everything. And, you know, the farmer, listened, the fellow dressed as a farmer listened very politely, nodded his head, you know, and 
Then when the student got up to leave, when he reached his station, uh, the person he thought was a farmer gave him his card, Louis Pasteur. <laughs> but it is estimated that, I, who was it? Uh, of course, I can't think of the guy's name. He was an Englishman. He said that the economic value of Pasteur's discoveries alone were sufficient to pay off the indemnity that Prussia imposed. So if France can come back from something deliberately intended to destroy them, you can say that in these terms, social justice terms, and with the right principles of economics, nothing is impossible. Of course, nothing possible is impossible, we should say. I, I think, what was it, Heinrich Roman in his book on natural law said, you must understand you know, the dictum that with God, all things are possible. It necessarily implies that all things that are consistent with God's nature is are possible. You can't, God cannot contradict himself because that would mean he's not God because a contradiction implies imperfection and God is a perfect being. That will be on the test, but not on this one. <laughs> that was your theology for today. Actually, that's philosophy, not theology. <clears throat> I mean, well, okay, I'll stop, stop. <laughs> Enough with the digressions already. Anyway, the problem that we have seen throughout this series is that a lot of people simply misunderstand social justice. It is not a euphemism for socialism. Socialism is separate. Modernism is separate. Uh, as I think I made the comment before, all modernists may not be socialists, but all socialists are necessarily modernists because they have to redefine fundamental principles of natural law in order to justify socialism and so that the end justifies the means, which is the fundamental principle of socialism, modernism, and this esoteric new age. If you doubt whether something is socialism or modernism, see if you can find where something, some basic principle is redefined. You could almost say that redefinition of basic terms is modernism or socialism, if you prefer. They will always go after something in the natural law, life, liberty, or private property, and redefine it to suit themselves. This is how they justify abortion, for example. That's not a life. Yes, everyone has the right to life, but that's not, a, that's not a human being. That's not a person. Since when? Before all this started, nobody denied that a fetus from the moment of conception was a human being. What else would it be? As when Roe versus Wade was first you know, uh, adjudicated in the Supreme Court, that a friend of mine in high school said, well, what do they think it is, a kangaroo? No, it's a human being, but they redefined it so that it wasn't that way they could get whatever they want, or as Justice White called it, an exercise of raw judicial power. Okay, that, that's my pro-life speech for the day. We're trying to get back to social justice here. <laughs> well, actually, in very broad parameters, every speech is a pro-life speech if it's along the right lines, that's all. Now, but to get back to social justice specifically, it is not socialism. The act of social justice <clears throat> is to make the practice of individual virtues possible by removing barriers to their full exercise by all qualified persons. 
and in a, in a broad way to any qualified participation in the common good. By common good, of course, we mean that vast network of institutions within which human beings, as what Aristotle called political animals, realize their humanity and develop more fully as human beings. And that's true regardless of your faith or philosophy. The, the meaning and purpose of life is to become more fully human and then fit and thereby fit yourself for your proper end, however you may define it within your frame of reference. We're, we're trying to be as you know interfaith and ecumenical as possible here to show the fundamental nature of natural law to every single human being, as was declared infallibly in the first Vatican Council. And this was one of the true infallible declarations. It wasn't one of these things that people mistake for infallible because they like it. it you know, two key doctrines were defined in the first Vatican Council. Infallibility of the teaching office of the Roman pontiff. They specifically put it that way from the earlier papal infallibility to show that it, the infallibility goes with the office of Pope, not with the person. And the other one was the primacy of reason. Faith is above reason, but it can't contradict reason. If you come up with an article of faith that uh, which your understanding contradicts something that you can prove absolutely by reason, then you need to resolve that contradiction. Otherwise, Either your reasoning is wrong or your faith is wrong. They can't, faith and reason cannot contradict each other. They can guide and illuminate each other, but they can't contradict. So social justice, to get back to our subject without all the digressions, uh, the idea is to remove participation to full barrier, to, to full participation in the common good by removing barriers to participation not to substitute for or replace the individual virtues. This is not to say that things like soup kitchens or distribution of alms or even government welfare are not good things in their place, but they are not social justice. They remain individual justice and charity or even an individual expedient, even if they're carried out on a huge scale because they are directed to individual good not the common good of all mankind. So that, that if we didn't make anything else clear in this series, that is a key point, one of the big ones. Uh, now, how do we get things back on track and where do we go from here? Now, I'm going to give some suggestions and keep in mind that they are my opinion but I think it's a good opinion. Of course, otherwise I wouldn't be making this video. I mean, <laughs> so what you need is, in my opinion, remember we said we said we needed that flashing light to come on whenever I did that. Uh, we have a, a six-step program to try to start restoring things to where they should be, or what Pius XI called the restructuring of the social order. Now, number one, surface some leaders. Now, I realize that we have a lot of people in the world today who call themselves leaders. They may even think of themselves as leaders, but stop to consider where they're leading us. We really do need some authentic leaders, to coin a phrase, so to speak. 
uh, it's like Russell Long, uh, who maybe he didn't carry, you know, Kelso's ideas to the level that Kelso wanted him to carry them, but he carried them far enough to get things started. He was what we would think of as an authentic leader. Now, two acts of social justice. Well, we just went over what social justice is. You don't want to confuse uh, social justice with socialism, obviously. Uh, it's by definition directed to the common good of everyone, not to individual good of anyone. And if you need to, maybe this is the time to go back, stop this video, go back and view the act of social justice video, then come back to this after you've forgotten everything. <laughs> then three, acts of social charity. Now, that's a difficult one. A lot of people confuse social charity and solidarity. Solidarity is a principle. It is only in a limited sense a virtue. It is not a virtue in the, in the Aristotelian Thomist sense, solidarity. Social charity is a virtue, and it means just as individual charity says, love your neighbor as yourself, social charity says, love your institutions as you love yourself. That doesn't mean that you just let something wrong go by because you love it so much. No, no, no. If you truly love someone, you're going to be very concerned about their welfare. So if you love your institutions, you're going to be very concerned about the, the welfare of your institutions. And of course, for a loved one, you learn all you can about the one you love. And for institutions, you will learn about how social institutions, the principles behind them, how they should be structured, how they should function so that you can help restructure them through acts of social justice. But learning how to do that is an act of social charity because you're loving your institution enough to improve it. That's your philosophy for the day. Uh, fourth on the list, and of course, I keep saying this is my opinion, but I'd really like to see an encyclical on economic personalism. The social encyclicals since the first one, Mirare Vos, in 1832, have been good as far as they went. But where some of them have, I can't even say stumbled, what they've done is in areas outside the specific expertise of the Pope, which is faith and morals, they have come up with some inadequate suggestions as to how do we implement this. For example, Leo XIII said, make as many as, as possible of the people into capital owners. Great, terrific. How do you do it? He suggested pay them more. Well, I won't get into the lecture on why simply raising wages without a corresponding increase in productivity is not a good thing. Simply paying people more doesn't really do anything. What you have to do is make them productive in a way that benefits themselves, which means ownership. The trick is how do you turn them into owners, which we will get into in a few minutes. Uh, Another thing I'd like to see, and again, personal opinion, I'd like to see Vatican III. Vatican I got twisted by the socialists and the modernists. Vatican II got hijacked by the socialists and the modernists. What we need is, in my opinion, 
a Vatican III that will take the principles and the intent of the first and second Vatican councils and make them more effective or make them effective, actually. Uh, it's easy enough to, to berate Vatican II as the worst council that ever happened in the history of the world. Uh, no, that's not quite the way to put it. Just look at what people did with it. A thing can be very good, but as Satan has shown from the fact that Satan himself was the highest angel, you can corrupt anything, usually by following your own opinion without reference to natural law. <laughs> of course, oh, yes, yes. I was about to say if natural law existed back when Satan fell, but yes, because the natural law is properly speaking based on God's nature, self-realized in his intellect, Satan was rebelling against principles of natural law as well as against God, which of course are inseparable because God is the natural law. It's not that he has the natural law. Something is right because God, it's right because God is, not because God says so. Yet another philosophy slash theology lesson for the day. Now, number six on our list is one that makes me very popular when I suggest that academia kind of needs reform. Uh, when you look at all the, the shift of academia, even Catholic academia, from you know, actual learning in the sciences and the virtues and everything else to job training and now diversity, uh, I think you could admit without attacking academia that there are some serious problems that need to be addressed by reforming the institution. Now, going along with that, we have six goals. And as I repeat, all of this is my opinion and I'm kind of constructing this myself. So, uh, people who really apply themselves could probably come up with a much better program, as long as they listen to me, of course. Uh, now, of all of these, the order is not critical, as long as you do it. Although I would say for, you know, the, 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 the program itself, better find a leader first because individual action is only gonna go so far without a leader uh, or even collective action without a leader. Uh, for the six goals, I would say, you probably could get around it, but reform the money system. You need to reform money, credit, banking, and finance because even though money is itself nothing, it stands for things. It is a tool. It is not itself the wealth that it stands for. It is an essential tool for economic activity. And if you're going to restructure the social order, you're going to have to worry about economics. You can't just build this economy of love that people want and expect everyone to produce out of the love of their neighbor whom they probably detest anyway and just give people what they want. It doesn't quite work that way. Communism was supposed to do that. All forms of socialism think that that's the way it's going to be. The Fraticelli during the Middle Ages wanted to abolish all this profit and return to the Garden of Eden. I just saw a Catholic magazine uh, have an article on how socialism and Catholic social teaching can get along with each other because they just both want to make things better and return to the Garden of Eden or some such. Well, no, we're not in the Garden of Eden. Uh, 
what's, what's that called? There's, there's a heresy that denies original sin, and I can't think of the word for a moment. Uh, well, anyway, <laughs> look it up, and then you can write nasty letters and be telling me I don't remember anything from the catechism. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, the rest of the reform of money, credit, banking, and finance is essential because it is by that, that's the tool that almost everyone uses, well, actually everyone uses if you're going to participate in economic activity. That's the means by which you participate and carry out transactions and, you know, finance things and exchange things, which is economic activity. Uh, you have to reform the tax system. Uh, obviously, when you have a tax system that nobody can understand, you're kind of getting away from what Pope St. John Paul II said in Centesimus Annus about having a, an understandable body of laws for your economy. How the heck do you obey the law when you can't understand it? Then three, reform the ownership system. You can't really have an equitable system when the state owns everything or controls it, which is the same as ownership as in socialism, or a few rich people as in capitalism, and I'm defining capitalism the way the socialists who invented the term define it, in which a few people own or control the means of production. Uh, a lot of people like to say that capitalism is really just a private property-based system. Uh, if you want to define it that way, fine, but that's not what we're talking about here. When I say capitalism, I define it as a system in which a few people own or control privately, the means of production. Uh, and if you want to say that I'm wrong and therefore my analysis is incorrect, that's there, there's a name for that logical fallacy, but that's another one of the things I can't remember at the moment. <laughs> but you're changing definitions on me and saying that I must be wrong because I'm using a, a, def a definition that you don't accept, even though my analysis may be correct based on my definition. I mean, for example, if you want to see some fairly good logic, look at Das Kapital by you know, Karl Marx. Uh, he makes a few logical mistakes, but if you accept his principles and his definitions, he, it's a brilliant analysis. But once you understand the problems with his principles, then you can tear it apart. But to say that Das Kapital doesn't make sense well, that's incorrect because within its framework, it makes perfect sense, except for a few flaws that you can point out. Uh, you also have to limit the economic role of the state. The state isn't the nanny of everyone, as the, the English like to put it, you know, the nanny state. The state is not there to take care of all our individual wants and needs. The state is there to, as the guardian of the common good that vast network of institutions. For the sake of expedience, it may sometimes have to provide for individual goods, but that's not its purpose and its role. And as Pius XI and other people have pointed out, if you overload the state with, try with too many duties, it won't be able to function at all. And I think what we're seeing in our day is with state, with governments trying to control every aspect of life, things are getting so out of hand that they're not able to do anything effectively. 
So when we say a limited economic role for the state, we're not talking laissez-faire cutthroat competition. The state does have a role, but it's not to take care of everyone. Otherwise you could just call us slaves of the state, which of course was what the decision in Pierce versus Society of Sisters did in 1925. But <laughs> that was when they tried to get rid of Catholic education in Oregon, but we won't get into that. <clears throat> uh, number five on the list, free and open markets. This kind of goes along with limited economic role of the state. And by free market, we don't mean laissez-faire cutthroat competition. We just mean a market that everyone, everyone is free to enter. Uh, number six, expanded capital ownership. As Daniel Webster said, and this time I'm gonna get it right because every other time I've gotten it wrong, 200 years ago this year, every other time I've, for some strange reason, I've said 100 years ago. Bleep that out when you watch the videos. It's 200 years ago, 2020 minus 1820 is 200. Finally got it right. Now for the record. Uh, 200 years ago, Daniel Webster pointed out during the constitutional debates in Massachusetts, power naturally and necessarily follows property. When you have technology advancing, displacing human labor, the value of labor relative to technology is going to fall economically. The solution is not, well, let's just raise wages because people need more income. It's we turn people into capital owners and they can participate in the profits of capital ownership as well as the profits of selling their labor. This way, everyone can have an adequate and secure income without redistribution. You'll have it by natural right. This was the point Walter Ruther, you know, the, the UAW president made in 1967 when he testified before Congress. Can you imagine a labor, labor, a labor leader saying, don't raise wages, give us profits, give us ownership. We'll take care of the income after that because we'll work harder, make more money, and thus share in the profits that we helped make and do it legitimately on the basis of private property, not by coercing people into paying us more for less. Uh, now we can go into these a little bit deeper now. The six steps, for instance, surface a leader. Uh, as I said, progress can be made without a leader, but only up to a point. It, uh, Someone like, and I use the, I like to use Senator Russell Long because he did it so quickly. Within moments of when he finally understood what Kelsa was talking about, he put the wheels in motion that eventually led to the adoption of the ESOP laws in 1973, which were embodied in ERISA, the Employment Retirement Income Securities Act of 1974, uh, you know, within a few months. And what you need is a leader who can direct and bring about change in key institutions. That is absolutely essential. I mean, grassroots efforts are also essential, but they can only carry things so far. At some point, you need someone who can help guide the institutionalization of these things, which in a modern society usually means putting them into law, which of course requires a genuine leader in Congress or whatever your legislature is called, uh, actually doing their jobs instead of trying to figure out just how to get reelected so they can pillage for more money. Uh, two, acts of social justice. And now we've gone into this at great length, but so just to summarize, 
Acts of social justice can only be done by members of groups. The principle of subsidiarity dictates that effective change can only come from inside a group itself. It cannot be imposed from the outside. I say that in a qualified sense because yes, you can force groups to change from the outside, but almost inevitably it's not for the better. Effective virtuous change, we'll say, can only come from inside the group. Outside elements can and it sometimes must help, but it must always ultimately be the people who want to change that will bring about effective change in the direction that it needs to go. Not that someone outside decides it has to go. Excuse me. <laughs> now, this is like individual virtue. If someone doesn't want to become virtuous, no amount of coercion is going to make him become virtuous. Otherwise, we wouldn't have so many people in prison and they wouldn't come out trained and hardened criminals. Simple coercion would say, if it were effective, oh, well, now that you've spent 30 years in prison, you're an ideal person, aren't you? You won't go back and commit crimes again. Well, if we could figure out a, a prison system that can rehabilitate people instead of simply punish them, you've got the perfect system. Insofar as human beings can have a perfect system. <laughs> I, I have a sneaking hunch that uh, only God has the perfect system. It's called purgatory. Now, when you come out of purgatory, you know you're perfect. At least, at, or correctly oriented perfectibility, shall we say. You're never going to be perfect as God is perfect, but that doesn't release you from the obligation of trying. I think I gave you my heaven speech before, didn't I? Where we are infinitely perfectable, whereas God is infinitely perfect. Therefore, assuming we get to heaven, we will always be on the road to becoming more perfect, ever more and ever more perfect, knowing all the time we will never be infinitely perfect. This is what makes eternity bearable. Otherwise, it would be boring as the other place. <laughs> That's my personal theory. Anyway, now, so the, the whole idea of, as I said, Pius XI's pontificate was the restructuring of the social order so that people could become virtuous and to do this through acts of social justice. And this is where he singled out in Studiorum Ducem in 1923, one of his earliest encyclicals. He gave the framework for how to carry out acts of social justice and understand the whole body of Catholic social teaching so that you would not slip into socialism. And I'm going to give an extended quote here because I just love to give quotes because it means that I don't have to think of what to say. Uh, I think this is uh, section paragraph 27 of Studiorum Ducem, which is on Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, says, again, if we are to avoid the errors which are the source and fountainhead of all the miseries of our time, now, okay, another digression, both Pius XI and Benedict the Fifteenth, that's XV, not XVI, 1914, blamed World War I on the modernists. It, and here's why they did. Uh, excuse me. So the teaching of Aquinas must be adhered, more, uh, adhered to more religiously than ever. 
For Thomas refutes the theories propounded by the modernists in every sphere, in sociology and law. And now, here is where I think that one of the things that Pius XI had in mind was refuting Monsignor John A. Ryan, because what Monsignor Ryan's work did was confuse charity and justice, distributive and commutative justice, legal and social justice, turned it into a complete chaotic mess. And here's Pius XI saying in 1923, you know, five years, oh, let's see, Ryan published Distributive Justice in 1916. So Pius XI, who read probably every book that was ever written, uh, even before he was elected Pope, was very well aware of what was going on. And he said, in sociology and law, by laying down sound principles of legal and social, commutative and distributive justice. In other words, a lot of people today say that legal, social, and distributive justice are all the same thing. And yet here's Pius XI clearly saying, no, they're separate. Legal and social, commutative and distributive justice, and explaining the relations between justice and charity. Don't confuse them. Charity fulfills and completes justice. It does not replace it. So when you say, hear people say, oh, we should have an economy of love, the logic of gift. We don't need this harsh justice. We can have kind and loving charity. Well, that's not the role of charity. You can't even call it charity unless justice has been fulfilled first. Uh, I think John Paul I, remember him? Uh, some people actually do. One of the few allocations he was able to give, he made a special note of saying, don't confuse justice and charity. Charity is not a replacement for justice. It completes and fulfills it. That's not exactly the way he said it, but that was the, the gist of it. And so Pius XI, a few years before that, concluded, it is therefore clear why modernists are so amply justified in fearing no doctor of the church so much as Thomas Aquinas. I have heard people just lambaste Aquinas and say, oh, we need to go with Augustine, St. Augustine. There's nothing wrong with St. Augustine, but as Monsignor Ronald Knox pointed out in his book, Enthusiasm, if you wanna find something strange and peculiar going on, you'll find that someone has twisted something Augustine said and misinterpreted Plato or done something weird anything to get away from Aristotle and Aquinas. You just got to get away from them. Otherwise, this modernism and socialism will not work. Of course, they won't work anyway, but that's beside the point. Uh, then, not merely acts of social justice, but acts of social charity. Now, as I said, social charity is not widespread individual charity. It's not, you know, uh, welfare on our gargantuan scale or anything else. What it is, is loving your institutions as you love yourself. It's uh, directed to the common good. The, 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 this is the good common to every single human being. It's what defines us as human. Strictly speaking, the common good is the analogously complete capacity to acquire and develop virtue or if you want, vice, that every single human being has by nature, by definition. If you don't have it, you're not human. 
So you can't take away natural rights. Natural rights are rooted in this capacity that defines you as human. If you take away life, liberty, or private property, or redefine them in a way that nullifies the right itself, what you have said is that entity from which we have taken that right is no longer or is not human at all. This is how they justify abortion. This is how socialists justify abolition of private property. This is how totalitarians justify abolition of individual liberty. They have just said that you're not fully human or you're not human at all because you took away a natural right or rendered it ineffective. See, the difference between socialists who want to abolish private property and capitalists who want to restrict it to themselves is only a matter of degree, not of kind. This is why, in my opinion, there's not all that much difference between capitalism and socialism. The, the poor boob at the bottom still ends up without property and usually without life and liberty when it comes, when push comes to shove. Okay, now I got my notes out of order yet again to get back on track. Okay, number four of the six steps, the encyclical on economic personalism. Uh, just the other day, I, I put up a statement on Facebook that we had gotten a, a pre-endorsement of our book that's coming up on economic personalism. And somebody instantly found an article from about 20 or 30 years ago that claimed that economic personalism is a fraud and then defined it in a very strange way. Well, in our book, we define economic personalism in a more human way, let us say. It's not collectivism. It's not individualism. Personalism is directed to the human person. This is what uh, John Paul II, when he got his doctoral thesis as, see if I can pronounce it, Carol Wojtyla. I think that's it. <laughs> it's not Wojtyla. <laughs> uh, he got his doctoral, his doctoral thesis was on personalism. It, uh, personalism is directed to the human person, not to an elite as in capitalism or individualism, or humanity as a whole, as in collectivism or socialism. Economic personalism is an economy that operates or is intended to operate and is structured to operate for every child, woman, and man, not just for the elite or for the state or humanity as a whole. It has to operate, or potentially at least, for every single human being, or it's not personalist. That's what we mean, I mean CESJ, by economic personalism. Now, step number five, Vatican III. Of course, it doesn't have to take place at the Vatican, but hey, you got buildings there, it's handy. Uh, another council would, in my opinion, might be desirable to begin implementing the Catholic social teaching to counter the new things. And you may even invite other faiths and philosophies to join in. And why do I say that? Because Catholic social teaching is not based on articles of faith. It's based on natural law, which is common to every single human being and therefore to every virtuous faith and philosophy on earth. You don't have to be a Catholic in order to run your life by principles of natural law. 
Otherwise, Catholic social teaching would make no sense. I mean, you can make up your own big banner. Catholic social teaching, it's not just for Catholics anymore. And it never was just for Catholics because it is natural law. Things need to be based on reason when it comes to Catholic social teaching, not faith, or you've automatically excluded anyone who is not Catholic, not merely from, you know, Catholic social teaching, but from humanity itself. You've said, these people are not human. If you can't understand the principles of Catholic social teaching, then by definition, you're not, uh, let me rephrase that, I didn't mean to put it that way. If the natural law does not apply to you, then Catholic social teaching cannot apply to you because it's based on natural law. I had someone uh, tell me many years ago, and he was quite a prominent Catholic, and he said something to the effect that Jews, because they are Jews, have nothing in common with Catholic social teaching. I had to think about that for a minute, and my response, to which he, which he completely ignored, of course, was that then you're saying that Catholic social teaching is not based on natural law and is therefore not valid for anyone? Or are you saying that Jews are not human and therefore natural law and thus Catholic social teaching does not apply to them? I mean, you get yourself caught in a catch-22 there if you deny that Catholic social teaching is universal. I mean, it's Catholic both with a capital C and a small c. So, in a sense, I, I think this is what Pope Francis is trying to do with some of the more puzzling things he's done. Uh, I think he may be, in my opinion, trying to bring others in, but not on the right basis. He's not emphasizing enough that this is the natural law basis. We're all going to differ on matters of faith, you know, between the different religions, but we can agree on principles of natural law, and that's where we should focus in true interfaith dialogue. You don't water down articles of faith. You don't have to, as when you're, at least when you're confining the discussion to natural law, which is where Catholic social teaching is. It's based on. Okay, so much for that commercial. Uh, number six of the, of the six steps that I came up with, reform of academia. And as is painfully obvious to especially students who have incurred, what is it, a quarter million dollars worth of debt and then can't find a job to pay it off, which they were assured they were going to get because they got this expensive degree. Modern academia is absolutely obsessed with job training for jobs that don't exist. And now, more, more recently, with diversity, for the sake of diversity, I thought, well, a university is by its nature diverse if you're talking about all the subjects it covers. But if you define diversity by saying, oh, we must let people in who aren't interested in learning anything so that we can include everybody. Well, no, you should include everybody who wants to learn and can learn. But why should you include people just so you can be diverse? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, it need, academia, therefore, in my opinion, needs to return education to teaching science and virtue. Now, I mean something specific by that. By science, I mean philosophy, not just the physical sciences. Because philosophy and theology are sciences. 
And by virtue, I mean principles of natural law by means of which you become virtuous, more fully human. Why bother to go to the university if all you're going to do is learn how to do a job that you can't find? You want to get, academia has to get away from the idea that the end justifies the means. I mean, getting a job is great if that's what you want to do. But if you want to become more fully human, then that's what you should learn. Now we have the six goals. And of course, being with the Center for Economic and Social Justice, the first one I'm going to put is reform of money, credit, banking, and finance. And I won't bore you too much with this. I hope I'm not boring you at all, actually. It's a, a complete overhaul of the financial system is absolutely essential if you're going to restore money to its true character and function. Money is not a god. Pope Francis is right on the money on that. I, what did I say? <laughs> I either said that brilliantly or very stupidly. Uh, when he says, you know, what, what I disagree with the way he said it was excessive love of money. Well, you shouldn't love money at all. I mean, St. Paul said love of money is the root of all evil, which a lot of people translate to, oh, money is the root of all evil. No, money is an essential tool for economic activity, but don't fall in love with it any more than we would fall in love with your hammer or your saw. At least I hope you wouldn't. Anyway, it's the means by which you participate in economic activity. So you have to restore it to a sound basis. You can't treat it as a commodity in and of itself, which is what Keynesian economics and monetarist and even the Austrians do. They act as if money is itself a commodity. No, no, no. It's a way you exchange commodities and produce commodities. It is not itself a commodity. Now, as Lewis Kelso said, I like his definition. Uh, it gets away from you know, the, the four things that you learned in economics class and probably forgot immediately. Money is the media of exchange, a store of value, all that stuff. No, we'll go with this one. Money is not a part of the visible sector of the economy. People do not consume money, at least not in that sense. Uh, I suppose you could if you wanted to, but uh, money is not a physical factor of production but rather a yardstick for measuring economic input, economic outtake, and the relative values of the real goods and services of the economic world. In other words, it's a tool. It's not a god. Although, of course, people do worship it. Love of money is the root of all evil, not money. Although you can certainly do a lot of evil with money, but you can also do a tremendous amount of good. Now, two, the second goal, excuse me, uh, reform of the tax system. Now, I'm not talking just about the US. I think that every tax system is the in the world is probably in seriously in need of reform. Uh, I'm not going to get into the millions of pages of interpretations and regulations and everything else. I'll just give three points that should be at the heart of any tax reform, because the purpose of a tax system is not social engineering. It's to raise money to run government. That's it. It's not to redistribute. It's not at least except as expedient in an emergency. It's not to get people to behave in desirable ways. It's raise money to run the government, period. So in order to encourage as many people, of course, having said that, I will now tell you how to use the tax system to change people's behavior. <laughs> uh, one. All personal income should be taxed at the same rate. 
I thought, if you really want to screw up an economy, tax ways you earn income differently. That because you will get people to do the things that you you want them to do and avoid the things you don't want them to do. And of course, the illegal things that the government doesn't know about will attract lots of people. Whereas if all you say is, okay, we don't care how you got the income, we're going to tax it at the same rate. You're not encouraging or discouraging per se any productive activity. Uh, two, dividends and all forms of profit should be tax deductible to the business. Right now, all profits are paid out, except under certain circumstances, which we'll get into, which I only know because I'm a CPA. Uh, don't come writing to me, ask me, oh, well, how can I avoid taxes on this? No, 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 that's not the point of these videos. Uh, all profits and dividends are usually paid out after tax. Well, if you make profits and dividends tax deductible at the business level, what you'll do is you'll encourage payout. And don't say that, oh, but we need those profits in order to finance new capital formation to make the business grow. No, you don't. Your reform of money and credit, which I said, talked about before, you can finance out of the capital itself. If the capital won't pay for itself over time, then why are you investing in it? So purchase capital for the business that pays for itself out of its own future profits. Don't retain earnings to buy new capital. That's your, your finance lesson for the day. But so, and you can pay out all profits to the owners who should be as many people as possible, of course. Because if you, if dividends or profits are tax deductible, guess what? To, you, a business could avoid all pro, all taxes simply by paying out all the profits that would otherwise have been taxed, which then go to the individual who is then taxed as personable, personal income on that. So the government actually gets more in taxes from and, and can probably lower the tax rate because more income is paid out that's taxable. Now, the third point is to encourage ownership, have a tax deferral on income used to acquire capital up to a level of capital self-sufficiency. In other words, it's not a tax avoidance. You're just waiting until you sell the capital before you pay the taxes on it. It's a great way to encourage capital uh, acquisition and it doesn't cost the government a cent because you're eventually going to get those taxes. It's a deferral, not evasion or avoidance. That's your accounting lesson for the day. Now, number three, reform of the ownership system. And by that, I mean uh, socialism, the state owns or controls and control is the same thing as ownership legally in all codes of law. Now, under socialism, the state owns or controls you know, the means of production. Under capitalism, a few private individuals own or control the means of production. What you want to do to reform the economy and to have a socially just society and economy is open up democratic access to the means of acquiring and possessing private property in capital to everyone. That was so important that George Mason, 
who drafted the original Virginia Declaration of Rights before the conservatives screwed it up by inserting something that to retain slavery. Uh, he was insistent that private property is a natural right together with the means of acquiring and possessing property, which means access to money and credit. Now, four, limited economic role for the state. This, as I said, the state's role is to care for the common good, thereby ensuring full access to institutions and providing 11, a level playing field, you know, enforcing contracts, keeping order. It is not to take care of every individual need. Now, there may be times when that's essential, a plague or a famine or something in which, yes, we, knew, we do need to redistribute some to keep people alive, but that's an expedient that is not the way society should be run, where you have some people producing their heads off and others just sitting back and taking it because it's their right to have it. No, it's not your right to have a good living. It's your right to have access to the means of having a good living, something different. Having the good living is up to you, unless you, of course, you are unfortunate and you just don't do it, in which case, yes, you have a moral right to be helped by your neighbors and in extreme circumstances, the state. Uh, number five, free and open markets. Again, this is, does not mean laissez-faire, law of the jungle, cutthroat competition. This is actually what Adam Smith, who as much as excoriated, especially in Catholic school, Catholic circles, was saying, also in Catholic schools too, <laughs> you know, his whole invisible hand argument was saying, was a way of saying the system should be properly structured so that people have free access to it and can freely exchange their goods and services, but circumscribed within a, as John Paul II put it, strict juridical order, a coherent and consistent body of laws so that people know what to do. Free market doesn't mean laissez-faire. It means a market to which everyone has free entry and can freely participate within a set of clear rules. And of course, equal opportunity and access to the means. It doesn't mean, you know, cut your neighbor's throat, anything goes. Number six, expanded capital ownership. This is what Leo XIII said would secure society on a solid basis. And he knew what he was talking about. He was actually the last pope to function as a civil governor in the papal states. And one of his actions when he was uh, Archbishop, Bishop, Governor of Perugia, now there's a title for you, and I won't get into the reasons for it. It was very strange. He was an archbishop, but was transferred, but they couldn't, uh, you know, demote him to bishop even though Perugia was only a bishopric. So he kept his archbishop title, but he was an archbishop bishop governor. <laughs> uh, he established a, a bank using his own money to help, you know, propertyless workers become owners of a small business or a farm. Uh, he knew how important capital ownership was. Whether you call it technology or land, it's still capital. It's the non-human factor of production. So he said in Rerum Novarum, paragraph 46, the law therefore should favor ownership and its policy should be to induce as many as possible of the people to become owners. 
Power follows property. If you want people to have the power to be able to exercise their rights and thereby become virtuous, you're going to have to get, make certain that they have the means to be the ability for doing, which is the, the legal definition of, of power. Now, ultimately, our goal is, and I use Buckminster Fuller for this, even though there are some aspects of his thought I don't care for, he's been used by a lot of new age people to justify some very strange things, but that didn't mean he doesn't have a lot of good things to say. One of which, by the way, he, he see, I think he was pro-life. So you can be a modernist and a new ager and a non-Christian. I don't even know if, if he was a Christian. Uh, and still be pro-life. One of my favorite pro-life groups is Atheists and Agnostics for Life. I love their email, godless pro-lifers. <laughs> anyway, our goal should be for, as Buckminster, and this is our, my, my conclusion for this video and for this lengthy series that you have suffered through for 16 now videos is, this was his goal. And I, I, I think it's called the Fuller Challenge. It's to make the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation and without ecological offense or the disadvantage of anyone. Great words, whatever you may think of Fuller or whatever you may not think of Fuller. <laughs> and that I think is, in his words, the whole goal of Catholic social teaching and what socialism and modernism want to do, but they jettison the whole body of natural law and Catholic doctrine and make it impossible to reach the very goal that they strive so hard to, to, to reach. <laughs> what NFL season? <laughs> yeah, so many I survived to do it. 